You're listening to the podcast of Antioch Presbyterian Church, a historic and charter congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, ministering to upstate South Carolina since 1843. Come and visit us at the crossroads of Greenville and Spartanburg counties. Experience our past and be a part of our future. For more information, visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. Hello and welcome back to the Old Antioch Podcast. My name is Zach Groff and I'm a pastor here at Antioch Presbyterian Church and I'm joined in the studio today with my co-pastor, or by my co-pastor I should say, Dr. Joseph Piper. Dr. Piper, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Zach. It's always great. As is our custom, we are going to go through a series of listener questions and seek to give them some biblical answers uh, to help you as you consider matters of faith and practice. But before we do, let's Uh, Return thanks to the Lord for this time and ask his blessing upon it, Dr. Piper. Merciful and gracious God in heaven, Holy Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bless and praise you and we thank you that you have promised us that you come to us uh, by your Spirit through your Word. And we ask as we begin this podcast now, Lord, that you would do so. We uh, do this exercise in dependence upon you. We pray that you give wisdom and insight and make it useful. All for your glory and honor. For Christ's sake, amen. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Before we dive in, uh, just a word of celebration. We are celebrating this coming weekend 180 years of ministry at Antioch Presbyterian Church. I think I mentioned uh, last month that uh, the actual birthday of the church is either August 17th or August 27th, depending upon which set of records you're looking at, civil or ecclesiastical, but we are recognizing the 180th this weekend, Saturday, September 16th, with a couple of historical lectures and then um, a fellowship lunch. Ruling Elder Mel Duncan of Second Presbyterian Church in Greenville is going to come and give his famous address on the story of South Carolina's Presbyterians, and then I'll be giving an address on the history of the old Antioch Church in particular, and then at noon we're going to have a lunch together. On Sunday, uh, Dr. Pipe is going to give a special Sunday school lesson on biblical church revival and how that has manifested itself here at Antioch and how that uh, what we should be looking for when we're praying to the Lord to pour out his spirit and bring revival upon his church. So if you're in the area, it's not too late to register. If I get this podcast out in time for you to hear it, um, otherwise it will be recorded. At least, um, actually, yep, all three sessions will be recorded and they'll also be available by live stream. So visit AntiochPCA.com for more information. But let's dive into our questions here. We're going to be ping-ponging back and forth between uh, questions uh, carried over from Isaiah Groom of Langley, British Columbia, and then questions submitted anonymously by a Presbyterian in South Carolina. So Isaiah asks, uh, along the lines of polity and church government, which uh, you know he's been asking about for quite a while, should we be expecting more or formal education for our ruling elders? Why, biblically, have we been expecting a seminary degree from our pastors but not from our ruling elders? Thank you, Isaiah. It's a good question. Uh, On the one hand, uh, we're, Pastor Croft and I are very committed to a high view of the office of ruling elder, uh, and it's an important, necessary office in the church. There's a difference, uh, not in terms of rule. All elders rule. So the, 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 what we would call in the PCA, a teaching elder or a ruling elder, are of all equal stance in ruling. The reason that the uh, the minister or the teaching elder goes to seminary is because he's 
being prepared for the particular task of preaching the word. And that entails, uh, in the first place, a good grasp of Greek and Hebrew, but also a much deeper grasp of um, the Bible, of uh, the principles of, of interpreting the Bible, of systematic theology and church history. A ruling elder, though, should be well-trained. He doesn't need to go to seminary, but a lot of our churches probably give short shrift to the training of ruling elders. Now, I do th- I'm thankful the PCA a few years ago added to our uh, examination process uh, Bible content for ruling elders. They should have Bible content, uh, and they should have a grasp of the Westminster Confession of Faith, a good grasp, as well as uh, church polity. These are the things that most appropriately fit with their responsibilities and rule and pastoral care. So it's not necessary for a ruling elder to have attended seminary, but our churches, I think, should be doing a much better job in terms of mentoring men, period, and particularly then men being prepared for a ruling elder. There are programs now that exist, in, in mostly certificate programs, uh, at different seminaries around the country, uh, but perhaps the most substantive is uh, if it's still being offered by Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, the Master of Ministry, which is designed for ruling elders and deacons. Um, when I was there, it was about a 34, 35 credit hour uh, degree program, and a number of men went through that, both elders and deacons, in the PCA and in other denominations, all of whom to a man said it was phenomenally helpful as a complement and adjunct to their um, local um, church officer training, which they received uh, usually from their pastor or from a commission of presbytery. I should have said that. I started that program, and it is excellent. And we have had men go through it. And so it's, it's most often older uh, men who maybe are, are retired or don't have the same home responsibilities. We have had some younger men go through it as well. But it's a very good program, and any uh, man that wants to do that, even if he's not yet a ruling elder, but wants to prepare himself for that, if he has... Uh, endorsement from his session may may do so as well. So I don't know why I forgot about it, but it is an excellent supplement uh, to uh, what is being done in the local church, and I would encourage every ruling elder who could to take it, and deacons as well. I think I noticed a couple of other seminaries have picked up on um, on the queue from Greenville and launched their own certificate programs uh, with similar goals, though slightly different areas of focus or emphasis and rigor. All right, our next question from Anonymous is, where did Old Testament believers worship before the temple? Some say they stayed home on the Sabbath. Others say Israel gathered on the Sabbath, based on Leviticus 23, verse 3. Some say Israel worshiped at the tabernacle. Some say tabernacle gatherings were only a few times per year, based on Leviticus 23. And still others say Israel worshiped in high places, based on 1 Kings 3, 2. Well, Presbyterian from South Carolina, that is a useful uh, question. Um, We begin with Leviticus 23, where you rightly began, which is the laws of religious festivals. Now, there were three annual festivals, but there was a weekly festival in Leviticus 23.3. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. 
You shall not do any work. It's a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. Now, the key here is the word holy convocation. That means a public assembly. Now, there's no way uh, in the 12 tribes that uh, people could go up to uh, a central place, the tabernacle, when they went into the land, and later the temple, uh, weekly. And there was no intention of that. In fact, uh, it seems to me, from when you look at the uh, Scripture, when it talks about what the Babylonians did, they burned down the meeting houses, not just the temple. And so uh, the synagogue system did not develop in exile. It developed in the meeting houses uh, by God's um, command with this to have a holy convocation. And so every uh, uh, village and city in Israel would have had a meeting house. And in their worship, they would have done all the things that were done in the temple that were not tied to the priesthood. So it wouldn't be sacrifices and things like that. But they would have had the reading of Scripture. They would have exhortations. Uh, more than likely, they sang. Uh, and so it's clear because of, of the need to have the Holy Convocation weekly that they were in their um, towns and villages doing that weekly. The high places uh, were never approved. Um, they were at times uh, used uh, as Solomon goes up to the high place. But um, God does condemn the high places. And, of course, the other things are not possible. Men were required to go to the central place of worship three times a year. And they often would take their families with them, uh, but there was weekly worship. Now, of course, there were believers before the nation of Israel was constituted as such in patriarchal times. And they would have worshipped with the larger family. Yeah, so, in their household or clan or right. tribe. Or so Job was the priest, uh, Abraham was a priest, and there were centers like Melchizedek. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so it was with the Mosaic system that the church under under organized visible church through the Abrahamic covenant is large enough now that they get this commandment from uh, God through Moses to uh, meet weekly. Meet weekly. <laughs> That's an excellent question and a very, a very fruitful one because we are commanded to worship as families, um, but that is distinct from um, corporate worship, which should really set the rhythm for even our families week to week. Um, bouncing back to Isaiah Groom, he asks, what authority do deacons have in the church, and how involved should the elders be in deacon duties and meetings? Do deacons have authority over the whole budget and fund of the church, or just a fund which is used for aiding physical needs of the congregation? Where could I go to learn more about what the duty of a deacon is, both conceptually and practically speaking? I have the duty of, um, I have Bannerman's book, and I've scanned it multiple times and can't really find a spot where he deals with deacons. Am I missing something? Probably not. Um uh, the diaconate is a neglected, misused office in Presbyterian churches today. One of the many reasons I love Southern Presbyterianism is that it was the Southern Presbyterians that uh, in our country put a, the diaconate on the map. The um, authority of deacons is laid out in the Presbyterian and the OPC Book of Church Orders. They have much more authority than uh, uh, oftentimes is uh, delegated to them. So some of the practical parts of your question, yes, they should prepare the budget uh, with input from the session, take it to the session uh, for uh, approval. 
um, they should have their own funds that they manage and don't have to go to the session um, as they manage the diaconal funds according to guidelines that have been laid down. The uh, elders, as our book of church, uh, the, the pastor would normally be an uh, ex-officio member, but many times the church simply would appoint a ruling elder who would meet with the deacons as liaison. I think the book requires them to meet annually together. A lot of churches do that uh, more frequently than um, annually. Uh, as to the duty, you could look at some of the works. Um, Peck, in his uh, works. Gerardo. Uh, Gerardo. Yeah. There's some modern things. Uh, I don't remember their names. A couple of Dutchmen did on the work of Diaconate. I'm looking at the book on my shelf now, but it's it's a taller-than-average book, so I'm looking at the spine of the, the paper, or the edges of the paper rather than the spine, but it's right up there. It's a useful book. It is. You write Zach, and he'll give you the name of it. Um, but I've used that in training uh, deacons as well. So uh, the kind of the wag is that... Uh, Elders do the work, uh, the pastor does the work of elders, and elders do the work of deacons. Well, that'd be better than what we get in a lot of churches. Uh, so, no, we need to make much more use of our deacons, both in terms of managing the material resources of the church, which I take actually also to do with the, the gift resources. And so people help to, to develop um, uh, people and their development of their own gifts and, and ministries uh, in the church. Uh, yes, the care of the church property, uh, but also then primarily the, the work that they are to do with respect to the physical needs, first of people in the congregation, and then as their resources uh, broader. Many presbyteries, like Calvary Presbytery, have a, a presbytery-wide document as well that is uh, very useful. They've been involved in disaster relief. They've been involved. They've helped us with a couple of projects here at Antioch. Um, many of our presbyteries will have deacons serve on appropriate committees uh, of the presbytery where diaconal uh, input would, would be useful. So there's a lot that we can do with our deacons, and we just need to get much more aggressive in developing them. I think one point I'd like to make about this, and you know, we're thinking about this even now in a church plant, while we hope to identify men who are qualified and, and called to serve as deacons and as elders, is that um, the deacons and the elders work together. Yes. Uh, so they are two distinct offices with different areas of responsibility, but those areas of responsibility overlap. And I would say even the, the, the lines or delineations of their authority overlap quite a bit. And not just in terms of oversight and, and subordination and, and whatever. I, I think it, it really is a, a joint effort to care for the flock, their material and physical as well as spiritual needs, of course. And um, the deacons are an integral part of that. If, if your deacons are relegated to the roles of custodians and sextons of the property, then um, you're really doing a disservice to the church. Deacons should be men filled with the Spirit who are hoping Lies. and wanting to exercise biblical wisdom in the affairs of the church and encourage uh, the, the proper God-honoring stewardship of the resources of the congregation. When I pastored in Houston and we had the res men resources of godly men, uh, our under-shepherd teams 
included a deacon along with the elder. And the deacon would go on pastoral visits uh, at least once a year in order to discuss stewardship matters, budgeting matters, questions that people might have as well with respect to their... Um, well, we got a question, a couple of questions later. We won't get to them today. Uh, of these very practical issues that deacons working with elders could facilitate. Our next question, bouncing back to Anonymous, is what guidelines should we follow to properly pray imprecatory prayers? Usually I don't like split infinitives, but the fact that you get four P words in a row, counting imprecatory as a P word, is pretty impressive. Uh, To properly pray imprecatory prayers. How do we do that? Well, you shouldn't have split the infinitive. He did. I'm just reading his question. I, we could have said to pray properly or no, properly, properly to, to pray, pray in pregatory prayers. It's a very important question because, unfortunately, we're not, uh, in many of our churches, again, using in pregatory prayers. We have a number of psalms uh, that are in pregatory. Um, Calvin, if you look at him in any of those uh, psalms that are in pregatory, almost every time gives the uh, uh, some important guidelines. So, A, we're not talking about personal matters. It's not because somebody did me wrong or hurt my feelings. It must be a matter of uh, the church, the honor of Christ, or the honor of a Christian brother. Uh, we'll take our persecuted uh, brothers and sisters. So when there are issues like that that have to do with the honor of Christ and the well-being of the ch- church is the time that we are to use those uh imprecatory psalms and to prepare our own imprecatory psalms. Also, in terms of great social injustice, uh, in pastoral prayer, in our prayer meetings, uh, we uh, pray imprecatory uh, uh, prayers with respect to uh, abortionists and not being quite as specific because of children, those that are uh, perverting the family and mutilating um, children. We... um, uh, my, my wife brought this up just a few weeks ago. So why are we not praying that God would mutilate them? Uh, I have prayed, uh, do pray, that God would close the wombs of the wives of men or the women who do abortions. Uh, that God will remove these people uh, from their places. So that that's the clear line that Calvin gives us. And I said first and second. So first is it's not personal. If it's personal, it's wrong. But if it's of a corporate nature, the honor of Christ and the well-being of the church or the, or the wider culture in the case of, of abortion and the uh, mutilation that's taking place now in our culture, it's very appropriate. And we should in the church's prayer meeting and uh, in our pastoral prayers uh, incorporate imprecatory prayers. Dr. Piper, what do you think about um, identifying uh, abortionists in your town and praying imprecatory prayers against them specifically by name. Is that ever appropriate? You know, I've not thought about it, Zach. I wouldn't do that in corporate worship. Um, in in prayer meeting, surely the, uh, at least the organizations, yeah. uh, we, we should be uh, identifying. Or what about um, praying for the destruction of known terrorists? such as when Osama bin Laden was on the run for all those years, was it appropriate for churches and, and individual Christians to pray that Osama bin Laden would be found and if not converted, then uh, put to death? Yeah. In fact, and I'm glad you mentioned that last thing. One of the things that we do is that, Lord, if you will not convert these people, that you will destroy them. Uh, terrorist, um, 
the wicked leaders in our own country. You know, it's a, it's a great tension. We must, we're told to pray for the safety and protection of our leaders. And I do that, but also pray that God will remove them from office if he does not convert them. Something that came up recently, I forget if it was with one of my children or with somebody else we were talking about the subject, and they said, how can you pray for the destruction of somebody when we're told to love your enemies? And I said, well, as long as our enemies, that is the enemies of God, the enemies of the church, are continuing in their sin, they're actually heaping judgment upon themselves, it would be better for them to be destroyed to cease doing what they're doing than it would be for them to continue in their course of action. And so I always pray that the Lord would convert them, but if that not be his will, then to destroy them as an act of mercy both to his church but also to them. But I think Christ particularly is talking about our personal enemies, not the enemies of the church. Mm. That's a good point. I still think my point stands. Oh, no, I I said as well. (laughs) All right, good question and an important one, Anonymous. Our next one, back from Isaiah. What do you think the ideal training method is for new office bearers? How long should training be for potential office bearers? Should elders in training sit in on session meetings before they are elected? Well, Isaiah, um, probably much longer than uh, many churches do. Um, I prefer to build it into, once you're an organized church, I've always built it into the life of the, of the church. So, for example, I'm, I mentor men. And so the men I have mentored are the men that are going to rise to the top like cream and are going to be recognized by the congregation, both in terms of uh, a godly commitment, but also the, the mentoring includes then um, – grasp of practical issues and of doctrine. So if I've mentored a man for a year, uh, he's not going to need uh, doctrinal training or practical training. I know here uh, uh, Zach's been uh, taking the men through uh, a book on uh, biblical masculinity. That's broad, but uh, some of those men will eventually either be pastors or elders or deacons. And it is, uh, it's a good background uh, for them. Uh, they must have a very good grasp of the standards. Now, uh, a pastor here in Greenville does something that whenever we get to this point, I think we'll probably incorporate. I've encouraged others to do it, and that is he gives every officer candidate, or it's in the class, a paperback copy of the Westminster Standards. He used to read through it, and he used to use three different color markers. The things he agrees with, he marks one color. The things with which he does not agree, he marks another color. And the things about which he has questions, a third color. This allows the one leading the class to know where these men are and particularly to identify anyone who um, would have some serious uh, doctrinal uh, difficulties. Dr. Pipe, I doubt that you've seen this meme, but have you ever seen the, uh, the, the meme that circulates on the Internet of a page of some science textbook that is all highlighter colored yellow from margin to margin. Have you seen that from edge to edge? <laughs> no. So that's basically what my Westminster Confession of Faith Mine would look too, like. Mine too, Zach. <laughs> one right. solid so, color. Now, um, not just elders in training, but we encourage the men in our congregation to, again, attend session meetings. If the session has to go into an executive session for something that's uh, needs to be dealt with discreetly and pastorally, we can do so. 
But it's good, I mean, men and, men and women to come and to see how their church officers function. So, uh, yes, but when a man is at that level now of training, he should be sitting uh, in on uh, session meetings. We also would um, uh, take these men after they've been uh, elected, uh, but before maybe even before they're ordained or installed on pastoral visits to teach them how to do a pastoral a visitation. So we, we want the men to be very involved in the life of the church. Next question, bouncing back to Anonymous. He asks, what biblical principles apply to deciding how much money to spend on non-essentials? And speaking particularly of the household budget, things like recreation, entertainment, and home decor. I find it difficult to spend on these things when that money could have been given to Christian causes. Well, the scripture uh, speaks to this Presbyterian in South Carolina uh, in that uh, basis of our giving, or the floor, is the proportionate giving, which I think the old covenant proportion of 10% is the very wise place to start. So as a man uh, is starting out in life, sometimes that's even more difficult. Uh, he, if he tithes, he's not going to have a, a lot left over. I can remember when, again, we lived in Houston, and one time a uh, uh, my son asked me, our neighbors would have boats and all this stuff. He says, why don't we have this kind of stuff? I says, well, if we didn't tithe and send you to Christian school, we could have all the toys you want. But you set your priorities in terms of those things. Now, as our estate uh, increases, we don't stay at the 10%. It's a matter of liberty at this point, what a person decides to do. But uh, you know, at my stage of life, uh, 20% is much more um, proper than 10%. Uh, now, once you've established your responsibilities to give uh, from the heart, by faith, to God's work, then your family budget is a matter of Christian liberty. And we're not judging one another with respect uh, to that. Uh, but each family will work out those decisions uh, for themselves. Uh, but we're not called to be ascetics. Um, God delights in beauty and, and beautiful things, and if a family wants to uh, have uh, you know, nice things in their home, as long as they're not skimping on, on the Lord's work, then that's their liberty. If another family wants to have a, a second home, a vacation home, and they're very generous with the work of the church, that is their liberty. So we don't, in the first place, want to legislate for anybody else, but seek as a uh, if you're married, a husband and wife, to work through these things in terms of uh, priorities. This is where using a budget is very useful as well uh, so that we know where the money's going, particularly as we're younger and uh, how, how, we're, how we're using it. One thing I'll just add to that, and all of that was, was, was good in terms of applying biblical principles. Another principle is you want to be able to exercise hospitality. If you give every nickel, dime, penny, and quarter to the church that you could feasibly give to the church and subsist on bare essentials, then you're probably not going to be able to uh, exercise personal hospitality, household hospitality uh, in your home. And then on the flip side, if you're the kind of guy that wants to have a boat to be able to go fishing, then I'm, I'm going to ask you, do you ever bring anybody else with you? I mean, those are sometimes those experiences are great opportunities. Right. Are using for, the second house. Yeah, for discipleship, oh, yeah. for um, extending hospitality and blessing um, underprivileged people, either in your congregation or missionaries home on furlough or ministers who can't mm. afford such things. Yeah, and then we're also whole people. 
and uh, there is an, uh, to be an element of, of recreation, if you put entertainment in there with recreation in terms of uh, our own development as well as the, the care for our children. These are all great questions of faith and practice. Um, unfortunately, we got started a bit later than we wanted to, so we're going to have to cut this episode short by half um, as we prepare for a prayer meeting this evening. But we thank you all for joining us for this last half hour. Um, we have some questions on our list, but we could always use more. So this is please, just to whet your interest. This is just, yeah, to whet your appetite. So please send in uh, additional questions and follow-up questions. And until next time, God bless you, and uh, may you revel in his goodness and grace. Thank you for listening to this edition of the podcast of Antioch Presbyterian Church. To submit your questions for the next Faith and Practice segment, please visit antiochpca.com slash podcast. For more information about Antioch, visit us on our website at antiochpca.com.